Shalom, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. My name is Margo Nykirk. I work at the Israel Policy Forum, and I'm the Policy and Communications Associate. And today I'm coming to you with an emergency podcast, and I'm with... Eli. Thank you for the great introduction, Margo. Evan Gottesman, recording from Israel Policy Forum's New York office. So, Margo, you called this an emergency podcast. Why is it such an emergency? Well, have you seen what's happened in the news? There's a lot happening in the news today. Well, specifically, this is about Netanyahu's announcement. Did you guys see what happened? I did. I think we can shed the pretense that we all didn't watch it together in the corner of the room that we're recording in. Netanyahu had a dramatic statement, but why is this dramatic statement different from all other dramatic statements? Well, it's dramatic because Netanyahu, for the first time, announced his plan immediately after the election to annex the Jordan Valley, a large part of the West Bank, where the border is with Jordan, near the Dead Sea. Netanyahu even displayed a map. Yes, that was a key difference from other past annexation proposals. He had specific parameters for what he was trying to go for here. It was a swath of territory, as you mentioned, stretching north from the Dead Sea. It completely surrounds the Palestinian city of Jericho, which is in Area A under Palestinian Authority control, whereas most of the Jordan Valley is Area C, the area under direct Israeli military and civil administration. And I think it's important to note as well that we're also a week out from elections. That is why he decided to make this announcement at such a critical moment. What do you guys think? How is this going to affect Bibi's campaign? Well, it's definitely going to have some effect. Um, And Netanyahu, I think he did this more because of the effect on the election in terms of an actual monumental policy shift, which I don't think it is. Another point is during his press conference, he also mentioned his intent to annex all the Israeli, the Jewish settlements in the West Bank. We spoke about on the previous podcast a promise that he made on uh, a few stops, campaign stops to the West Bank, that he would only do this in coordination with President Trump and immediately after the elections, but with the Americans involved. With regards to the Jordan Valley, he didn't specify American involvement, and he uh, specified that it would be an immediate step, and he is the only prime minister that can fulfill this historic opportunity that may not come for at least 50 years, I believe he said. Right. The the point is to put pressure on his rivals who are currently, we're talking about Kakhol Lavan, led by Benny Gantz, Yair Lapid, Gabi Ashkenazi, and Moshe Yalon, who are trying to go for a unity government with Likud, but without Netanyahu, to put pressure on them and say, you can't miss this historic national opportunity that can only be stewarded by Netanyahu, that can only be done in coordination with Trump. I think he, he mentioned in his speech, he was like, who do you want to be working with Trump? Do you want me or do you want Gantz and Lapid? So he's trying to play on the trust that he has tried to build up as Israel's diplomatic extraordinaire with the Israeli public. It's also interesting that, you know, he talked about all of the Jewish settlements, which, as you mentioned, Eli, he mentioned in previous campaign stops. He also mentioned applying Israeli sovereignty or de facto annexing all Israeli settlements in the lead up to the previous election in April. But his specific reference to the Jordan Valley, that was a clear play on something that many Israelis view as mainstream and as accepted that it would be Israeli territory in the future or have some level of Israeli or at least non-Palestinian security control there. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, looking at a map, you'll see the Jordan Valley is it's the area that covers 
the West Bank of the Jordan River essential for Israel's security in every negotiate, round of negotiation with the Palestinians. Uh, the Jordan Valley has always been a uh, sticking point with Israeli negotiators that Israel retained control of that area for at least uh, the coming decade, if not longer. I mean, if we look at the Olmert proposal in 2008, he proposed that Israel, that his IDF soldiers stay in that area for, I believe it was 30 to 35 years. The Allen so, plan also proposed under the previous American administration. Yeah, yeah, I believe that was 10 years of transitioning to a U.S. international force afterwards. So um, the Israeli security establishment is clear on the importance of the, the Jordan Valley. This, I mean, where the border is with Jordan, you could see how that could be obviously an important security consideration with Israel, should there be any arrangement with, with the Palestinians. But this is unilateral. So that's a, a big difference. And it would mark the first act of unilateral annexation of a part of the West Bank by Israel. But the important uh, point here is that this would mark the first time Israel actually annexes part of the West Bank. Netanyahu made clear that he wouldn't be annexing any Palestinians, obviously something that isn't popular among most Israelis, and that the Palestinians who live in those areas that are kind of surrounded where Jericho is will still have access roads and it won't affect their way of life. Not sure how that will play out if this goes through. Something definitely important, especially if it goes through. Yeah, I I believe there are close to 70,000 Palestinians living in the Jordan Valley area. So open question, what is going to happen in terms of their daily lives if this was something that were actually executed? Of course, what this changes on the ground is also questionable because outside of Jericho, which is under Palestinian authority control, Israel already has effective control in the Jordan Valley. It's part of Area C. It's also an area that is not very like densely populated. All the Israeli moshavim and uh, settlements there have are pretty small. And actually, interestingly enough, they usually vote left in elections, which is different than settlers living pretty much anywhere else in the West Bank. So I think it will be important to watch how world leaders and the world responds to this. I mean, we've seen the Palestinians already condemning the, the statement and saying this is a further nail in the coffin to the two-state solution. Etc. But I don't think that should surprise any of us. Netanyahu is scheduled to travel to Moscow, I believe it is over the weekend, right before elections. And how will Putin react? Netanyahu has been gloating over his relationship with Putin. Will Putin uh, be supportive of this move? I'm inclined to doubt it. Margot, what do you think about European countries? I mean, I don't think they'll be that happy, but, but who knows? I mean, look, the issue of Israel-Palestine on the Europeans list is not so super high up right now, especially given their domestic politics. That being said, the EU is Israel's largest trading partner. So the Europeans do have some say in what goes on in the region or this part of the region. Typically, if you make the issue black and white, the Europeans have always been painted as as being pro-Palestinian, right? The Europeans are going to condemn it. They're very strict in terms of adhering to a two-state solution, ensuring that Israel has the right amount of security as well as getting the Palestinians back on their feet and, and securing their own nationhood. But you don't think this is something that they'll go to? It's not like a red line. It's not something where 
all of a sudden the EU passes some sort of boycott on Israel or tariffs. No. I, mean, I, don't, it's, I don't think it's anywhere near well, the Europeans that. Are more, the Europeans on a, on a government level are a lot more... I mean, Ireland passed a resolution saying that they were pro-BDS or that they, they do encourage a boycott. However, in terms of the European Union level... Trade with Israel is still very important. And so in terms of importing products from the West Bank and from any annex territory and labeling that on there, and as an individual consumer, you can choose yourself if you would like to purchase that or not. However, this won't have as much of an impact right now, at least. Even if you look at the Ireland example, which is often cited as the most extreme example, as you brought up, Margot, even that was only a boycott of settlement goods, which whether or not you agree with that, if that's the most extreme that a European country has taken it to at this point, there's still a length to which European countries could go on this. I would also add that there's probably a complicating factor for the European governments if this is something that Netanyahu is marketing as being done in coordination with the United States, because the relationship between the United States and its European allies right now is very tense. And it's kind of in an awkward spot because of the way that the Trump administration has angled towards NATO and towards other European partners. And so because of that, they may not be as strongly inclined to jump on this as they might have if it were a purely independent Israeli initiative. You mentioned Russia and and Netanyahu's trip there, which I think is a campaign trip. It's part of this initiative to show that he's good with all these world leaders. And it's also been speculated that this is sort of a way to one-up Avigdor Lieberman's base with Russian-speaking Israelis. Netanyahu took a trip to Russia right before the previous election, and Putin has seemed willing to play into Netanyahu's electoral campaigns in the previous election. So even though the Russian policy is probably going to be to verbally oppose this annexation, I wouldn't expect any sort of concrete action out of them either. Yeah, we're also, obviously, we're talking about just rhetoric. We're not talking about any actual changes on the ground. I haven't been following every European leader, but I'm sure that from Macron and from Merkel will have statements or reaffirming support for Tuesday. How this isn't helpful. And I think, uh, I mean, obviously the UK, I think Boris Johnson, who just met with Netanyahu this week, is busy with his own uh, shenanigans. So I don't see them standing up. And probably you'll have a, uh, an EU statement from, from Mogherini. Mogherini, again, probably not too different than Macron and, and and Merkel and the most uh, prominent uh, leaders of uh, EU countries. But let's maybe turn back to Israel and how this will play out in elections. Do you see this? Uh, I'm going to put this question to both of you guys. Do you see it as a move by Netanyahu to kind of pander to his right? Because on one hand, Netanyahu is not promising the full annexation that true right-wingers in Israel want. Or is it kind of a move to try to attract votes from the center, from Lieberman and from Gantz to try to kind of move, move votes back to the Likud that have maybe left. But is this kind of a change of strategy from Netanyahu? What do you guys think? I don't think it's necessarily a change of strategy. I think the election season has been kind of quiet, and this is a way of maybe securing that right-wing block as that is coming into question right now. And the whole this whole election was put into place because he could not form a government. So I think Bibi's a smart man, and he has thought through his moves, and I think that he is at the final point now to make sure that he gets that right-wing government, because why have another election then? No, you're right that 
in this previous round of elections, he wasn't able to form a government that would grant him immunity. And of course, the common theme here has always been to distract from his legal troubles and to play up his diplomatic credentials. What I would say actually is that I think in this case, this is something that actually exposes Netanyahu more on his right flank than it does on in the center right or on the left. It puts the opposition in a very awkward spot because as we all discussed earlier, the Jordan Valley is viewed as kind of a mainstream area in Israeli society. And we've seen the Democratic Union, its leader Nitzan Horowitz, we saw a statement from him. We saw from another Democratic Union merits, MK Tamar Zandberg, also commenting on this. Ehud Barak also uh, issued his own tweet on this. And they came out and, and spoke about this. But that's sort of the leftmost spectrum of the Israeli Zionist political parties. Amir Peretz had a much more uh, bland statement about this. He, he kind of asked when Netanyahu was going to stop focusing on annexation and focus on the socioeconomic issues instead. And Kaholavan is certainly in an awkward position because they've also talked about the Jordan Valley being Israel's security border. So it's hard for them to come out forever, against it. Forever. I mean, I think that's something right. that, that Gantz said as recent as yesterday. So this is, that kind of points to maybe this is a, this is kind of a move to appeal also to different people on the right, but all, as well as voters in the center, it reminds me a lot of what happened before last election with the recognition of the Golan Heights. Obviously, that was there was clear uh, U.S. involvement. We're yet to see direct U.S. involvement with this. We were waiting. There was a press conference that a lot of people expected to be about this from Pompeo, but it was. We found out later that it was about uh, the dismissal of of John well, Bolton. It, it wasn't really about the dismissal of John Bolton. That was actually part of the problem. He was on the schedule to be at that meeting. He didn't show up and Pompeo was deflecting questions about it. But in any case, it didn't shed any light on anything about this Jordan Valley annexation question. But where the where the similarities really lie is it, it's kind of a place where Netanyahu is taking a very safe, calculated risk. The Golan is something that's in the Israeli consensus. I think even it was hard for Merit's MKs to criticize a U.S. recognition of the Golan Heights. A few of them did, but I mean, that's the fringe of the Israeli political spectrum. So this is something that has consensus support for the most part in Israel. And it's something that Netanyahu's detractors will have a very hard time to criticize him on. What they can criticize him on is these election promises that he always makes seemingly a few days before the election, which usually or at least a lot of them don't really pan out. You won't very often find us agreeing with Petzalo Smotrich on this podcast. He certainly expresses many repugnant positions that we would all disagree with. But one thing that he did say today, which is that Netanyahu, before all these elections, is always making promises. And that is where the right wing can target him. And they're not completely wrong in that respect, that they'll frame this as just a promise. And it actually gives the far right in Israel, people like Betzalel Smotrich, a platform where they can dare Netanyahu to do more. They say, you were going to say before the election that you will annex the Jordan Valley after the formation of a government. I think Yamina uh, Ayelet Shaked today said, why don't you do it before the election? And other far right politicians saying, why don't you annex more than the Jordan Valley? So this is sort of how annexation gets brought into the mainstream 
and the parameters are widened for what is within the consensus and what's without. So I think that's why the statement is so dangerous. Even if it is, as Smotrich and other right-wing critics of Netanyahu are saying, just an election promise. Yeah, I, I mean, I completely agree with you. Have you seen that Netanyahu's had a full day of election events? I mean, he was first at this event announcing about annexation. Then he went to a rally in Ashdod. And while he was in Ashdod, rockets were launched from the Gaza Strip. And Netanyahu had to be rushed off stage. Exactly. They had to evacuate the hall where he was speaking. Ashdod, obviously an important city for Netanyahu, a city that in, where Avigdor Lieberman, one of his big rivals, enjoys a big amount of support because of the large Russian-speaking community there. And so this is obviously not a good look for him. I mean, he's calls himself Mr. Security, and he made this big statement earlier in the day about this dramatic step that he was going to take to secure Israel. And now um, he's having to rush off stage. So obviously, I think this is going to be a video clip that his rivals take advantage of. To be fair, Netanyahu kept relatively cool on stage. He didn't rush off himself, but not a good uh, photo op. Yeah, you're right. Not a great photo op for him. And it just goes to show all the security issues that are coming into place in this upcoming election with what happened last week at the Lebanese border, with the consistent rockets that have been launched out of the Gaza Strip over the past year, and as well with the annexation that may or may not take place over the next couple months or or years. It's all on the ballot. So I'm going to disagree with both of you here a little bit about how this looks for Netanyahu. Obviously, the immediate impact is on the people of southern Israel who are in a situation of great duress with the rockets coming out of Gaza and placing these communities under a really severe security situation. Also, the people in Gaza who will have to deal with whatever Israeli military response is going to come to these rocket attacks. But as far as it plays into the campaign, Netanyahu, as we've discussed, has built up this image of Mr. Security. And so if there's a security crisis, then Israelis may want to stick sort of with the devil you know and stick with the comfortable option that they know that Netanyahu has weathered these Gaza conflicts before. They know that he's shepherded them through these crises in the past. So maybe it's better just to stick with him. And that could maybe shore up a little bit of fringe support for Netanyahu that could carry him over to another seat whatever will make the difference. And when we're dealing with such close numbers, it could make the difference. Of course. And he also, of course, promised to destroy Hamas in uh, 2009 during that election campaign. And I'm sure I'd hope that his voters would also remember that. Clearly, they don't remember because he's been elected consistently over the past 10 years. But I mean, I think it is clear that Netanyahu has no uh, solution uh, for Gaza. He hasn't spoken a lot about Gaza during this campaign. It's a weak point for him. So for that reason, I think this is not a good look. I'm not saying that it's a good look or that Netanyahu manufactured this crisis or that it's something that he wants necessarily. But as far as whether or not it will play out positively or negatively for him, it may make Israelis say, what are we comfortable with? What makes us feel safe in these times of crisis? It's the person who's been with us through the past 10 years. And I'm not saying that's right. And I'm not saying Netanyahu has an answer on Gaza. He's a brewing humanitarian crisis there that's going to blow up into Israel at some point also and and have a regional impact. And there's no answer on that. At the end of the day, I don't think this will decide the election at all. But I think if Netanyahu were to decide if he could skip this or have this not have happened, then he would have decided to do just that. And I agree on that. As we're back and forthing about how things are going to play out for Netanyahu and for other parties, we can look at something a little more concrete. 
and check out the polls. And we know Eli likes looking at his polls. So why don't you... Do I you, like polls, Evan? Is that a... Yeah, I like polls. I think that you've been very enthusiastic about looking at them in all of our election podcasts. So. I do like polls. I do like polls. Okay. Now we have big news on this poll, right? We have big news. We have big news. We have We're going to talk about the latest poll from our favorite pollster, Camille Fuchs, a former podcast guest, the pollster that whose exit poll was closest to the actual results of the election, and that's when the two other main channels were way off. And the big surprise here is at the bottom. So you'll have to listen through this entire we'll segment. start from the top. I mean, we have Kaholaban jumping in front of Likud by one seat. Again, take all this with a grain of salt because we have a 3.9% margin of error. So, I mean, that in itself is almost six seats. So, but we have Kaholaban jumping in front of Likud, 32. The Likud with 31 projected seats. Then we have the joint list of Arab parties at 11, Yamina at 9, Israel Betenu at 9, United Toward Judaism, UTJ at 7, and we have Shas and the Democratic Union at 6, Labor Gesher at 5, and with four seats, we have Otsma Yehudit, the ultra-right-wing Kahanist party. We saw the Likud, I think, drop a seat here from previous polls, some of those clearly, those voters clearly going to Otsma Yehudit. And if this is the case, and this is how things play out, the right-wing parties will have 57 seats, the left-wing centrist and Arab parties 54 seats, and Israel Beitenu 9 seats. So this doesn't give Netanyahu the 61 seats that he needs, but it gets him closer. Again, this doesn't mean that Otsma Yehudit will pass the threshold it's still way up in the air. If I was a betting man, I would bet against them. Right. If we're talking about a 3.9% margin of error in an election that has a 3.25% electoral threshold, we're talking about the difference about whether or not this party even makes it into the Knesset. So again, I think Eli's word of caution is very well placed there because it's certainly not for sure that they'll make it, but this is the closest that they've come so far in this election, I think there have been a handful of other polls that showed them right at the threshold, maybe right over. But now we're a week out. So now, yeah, and it's also interesting to we talked about Netanyahu maybe trying to pander to, to the center. He's known for trying to go to the right to kind of amass all those votes on the right. Whereas here, it is in Netanyahu's benefit for Otsmaya Hudit to actually pass the threshold in many ways. But it's something that I think will be very close. I mean, I think Netanyahu will still do his best to try to get Otsma Yehudit somehow to become part of the Likud, if possible. I think it will be tough for him, especially with the bargaining power that Otsma Yehudit will have now after being above. And I think it's this is the fourth or third poll in a row where they've been above the threshold. And this is like the first time they've been above the threshold. I don't even think they were near this. And I mean, they, they joined up with the right-wing parties in the last election, but they haven't been near this on their own in a very, very long time. You remember, I think, in the 2013 Knesset, they had two they had two seats, was it? Or was it the Knesset before that? Which right, that was before the electoral threshold had been raised mm-hmm. in the lead-up to the 2015 election. So that's, that's where the polls stand. We'll have, uh, on Friday is the day where the last polls will be released. So you can, I think... There's a likely scenario where you'll have you'll have Otsmai Yehudit above the threshold when the last polls are are taken. So that's something that could affect 
of this election. So unfortunately, we just finished my favorite part of the podcast, the polls. But I'd like to ask you guys, the election is next Tuesday. I will be traveling to Israel to vote. I know you guys won't. Do you have a party in mind that you would vote for if you were an Israeli citizen or if you lived in Israel? So this podcast is nonpartisan, and I don't want any of this to be taken as an endorsement of a specific political party. But one thing that I can endorse is the Israel Policy Forum 120 Project Political Party Personality Quiz. And I took that quiz, and my result was the Democratic Union. That's the party led by Nitzan Horowitz of Meretz. It's a merger of Meretz. Stav Shafir came in from labor. Ehud Barak brought in his new Israel Democratic Party. So based on this... Yair Golan in that Yair party Golan well. also, a, a notable figure, for, former deputy chief of staff of the IDF. And this is the new left-wing alliance in Israeli politics. So based on that super scientific and incredibly conclusive and accurate quiz, I guess that would be my party in the next election. Margot, uh, what party did you receive? So I actually took the quiz twice just to explore my options. And the first time I also got the Democratic Union and the second time I got Kapo Lavan. So I, I guess if we're referring to the quiz, which I also think is a great resource and you should check it out. If now you, you wouldn't to. put two, uh, two ballots in one envelope because you know you can do that in Israel and it actually voids your, your I, vote. I do not... I did not know mm-hmm. that. Israel has a very outdated voting system where you just have a bunch of little slips with the party names and you put you select one and put it in an envelope. Right, that's where they have all their, their little acronyms. They get very territorial about those acronyms too, right? Doesn't Likud, Likud like owns Machal, right? Mm-hmm. Labor, mm-hmm. Emmet. Right? Emmet, yes, yes, of course. So very interesting. Thank you guys for sharing your insight. There were no official endorsements of unfortunately. Course. Margo, I'm curious, what do you think you changed between those two quizzes that brought you from Democratic Union to Kaholavan. Did you decide think, to put think, Israel before all? Is that what the change was? No, I think it was the last part in terms of the figure, which is really figure, do I most deeply identify Oh yeah, that was with? a question. Fa- favorite, quiz, favorite, yes. favorite figure from Jewish history. Exactly. Yeah. You picked Alfred Chaza, right? Probably. You probably, you probably went, went from Karl Marx the legendary to Benjamin Israeli, Netanyahu. Probably. The legendary Israeli singer Alfred Chaza and Evans, of one of Evans' most favorite historical figures, Karl Marx. I would switch it around and say one of my favorite singers, Ofer Haza, maybe less favored historical figures, okay, Karl Marx. Fair but enough. Fair enough. The, the, we encourage you all to take this quiz. It, it's definitely up there on your top BuzzFeed style quizzes. I don't know if uh, either of you are keen on taking these personality quizzes you see pop up from time to time. You know, which Israeli political party are you based on what your meal would be at Denny's or something like that? So you can take a look at the Israeli party quiz on our 120 Project Elections resource at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash elections two. If you're still here at this point in the podcast, you're truly a dedicated listener and we have some information you don't want to miss. This Thursday, September 12th, we're running an elections video briefing with former member of Knesset and journalist Ksenia Svetlova. You can register for that at ipf.li forward slash 912 WBNR. We're also running programs throughout the tail end of this Knesset election season in Indianapolis on September 16th, in New York, Chicago, and D.C. on September 19th, and in Boston and Los Angeles on September 23rd. There's more info on our website. And if you want to learn more about the consequences of West Bank annexation proposals, like the ideas Netanyahu is now discussing, check out Annexation Watch at www.israelpolicyforum.org forward slash Annexation Watch. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.